Welcome to the ProPolitics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is former Congressman Barry Goldwater Jr., the son of the iconic Arizona senator and 1964 Republican presidential nominee, whose very name is synonymous with the rise of conservatism in American politics. And it was George Will who later wrote that Goldwater ran for president in 1964 and won the presidency in 1980, with Ronald Reagan's election as the culmination of the conservative movement, initially led to prominence and grown by Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater Jr. served 14 years in Congress through the early 80s. And over the last few decades, he's had an incredibly successful career in the financial sector. In this conversation, we talk his memories of key moments of his father's political career, intersecting with Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and the Goldwater political legacy, and go deep on his own journey in politics with great stories and insights from someone with direct connections to some of the most important moments in American political history. Congressman Barry Goldwater Jr., tell me a bit how you grew up. I grew up in Arizona with my father in politics. Been in, around politics all my life. In fact, somebody said that I came out of the uh, my mother's womb uh, with a bumper sticker on my butt. Arizona, it was all Democrat back in those days until the 1950s when the Arizona business people got together and decided that we needed two parties. And pretty soon the state, this was back when my father started in politics, uh, Arizona flipped over to become a Republican state. Now, of course, today it's starting to move back primarily because a lot of out, people from outside the state are moving in, they're bringing their politics, especially from California. In politics, the pendulum swings left and right. And it has, I guess, since the Mayflower. My father ran for the city council. And during that time, the whole family get, gets involved. The kids go out and they nail posters on the telephone poles and pass out pamphlets and buttons. And I think I did that throughout my early career because he went from the city council in the early 50s. And this is in Phoenix, right? Phoenix City Council. In, in, in Phoenix, Arizona. Went from the city council and then in 1953 uh, rode Eisenhower's coattails into the United States Senate. Again, the whole family's involved family photos and uh, promotions and the buttons and the bumper stickers. And I was raised with that. But I was also raised as an entrepreneur because the Goldwaters came to Arizona in 1860. They were Jewish peddlers with a wagon full of goods and uh, pots and pans. Came from, well, they actually came across the pond over across Nicaragua, up the West Coast to San Francisco and into the gold fields and went broke came down to Los Angeles, got involved with a businessman there. And then they, with their wagon, came to Arizona. And that little wagon turned into a regional department store called Goldwaters. The best always was the slogan. And that's how I sign my letters today, the best always, because it means something. It means that if you're going to be successful, if you're going to be happy in life, you got to put the best always into everything that you do. And that's kind of the way I was raised and, and brought up. Work as hard as I can, uh, enjoy the failures and the successes. That was kind of the atmosphere that I grew up in because we had the Goldwater store and made a living. I worked in that store all my life, high school, college, with the intention that I would eventually take over the store and run it. That was my passion. That was what I was born to do, was become a merchant. I could uh, lay out a, a simplistic pattern 
on a bolt of cloth and teach women how to sew. And I could feel a piece of cloth and tell you what it was, nylon, rayon, cotton, linen, wool. I was very good at it, and that was my passion. However, I graduated from Arizona State University after all this work to become a merchant, and my father and his sister and brother, who owned the store, sold it. And I'm standing there with a diploma and no place to go to work. I go to my father and I said, hey, what'd you do that for? Why, why? you knew what my passion was. Why, why did you do that? And he looked me straight in the eye. He said, son, I gave you an education. Now go out and use it. End of discussion. Make your own way. Make your own way. He slammed the doors. I left the house and off I went going after my own fortunes. I moved to California, became a stockbroker. Well, that's a great foundation. Let me pull it a few of those threads. You outlined an Arizona of the 40s and 50s that was more democratic-oriented, the Arizona you grew up in. So what led your father to run for office in the first place, and what made him able to break through as a conservative Republican in what you've outlined as a pretty democratic state? The Goldwaters were Democrats. They founded the Democrat Party in Arizona, my great-uncle. But then when this wagon became a, a regional shopping center, my father and his brother were running the store. My dad's brother came to my dad one day and says, you know, Barry, we, one of us ought to become a Republican for business reasons. So they flipped a coin and my dad lost and he had to become the Republican. And that's a true story. My father grew up in Arizona. His uh, uncle was mayor of Prescott, Arizona for 20 years, brought the telegraph to Arizona, was part of the Constitutional Convention, and my, he mentored my father. My father traveled around with him and learned from his uncle about hard work and about freedom and about our Constitution. I think that instilled in him a desire to serve. He served in the Second World War for four years, flying airplanes over the hump, supplying um, Generalismo Chiang Kai-shek, who was fighting Mao Zedong, communists. And then he, he came home after four years and got into the business, and then right away wound up running for the city council. We think of him, and he was very important in the conservative movement, but really in local politics, got into politics more as a reformer and as part of a reform movement in the city. Yeah. At the time, Phoenix was kind of corrupt. It was the Wild West, though. Uh, there was a lot of corruption, a lot of shenanigans going on at the local level. A bunch of the businessmen felt that Phoenix and Arizona was better than that, and they put together a charter government reform ticket to clean it up. And they won, and they cleaned up the city. That's kind of what got him going into uh, serving. And the opportunity to run for the Senate came along, and, and he took off on that. And so he'd been in the Senate a decade or so by the time he throws his hat into the ring for president. What made him want to run for president in 1964? That's a massive undertaking. What do you remember about the family discussions and the decision-making process to launch that campaign? He served those many years in the Senate after he was elected in 53, and he was appointed the senatorial campaign person. So he traveled all over the country in little burgs and little towns making speeches, talking about the Republican philosophy of limited government and limited taxes and more personal responsibility and strong defense. He defined what a Republican should be. All these little towns and people, when it came time for finding a candidate, they turned to Barry Goldwater because he was very popular, he was well-liked, was a natural choice. But it wasn't something that he had a burning desire to do, as I recall. And he also realized that 
to run for president in 1964. And if he won, it would have meant three presidents inside of four years. And the country was not ready for that. He knew uh, whoever was the Republican ticket was going to have a hard time winning. He realized that. It wasn't something he wanted. He got pulled into it. He got drafted. At the 1960 Republican convention in Chicago, uh, he stood up and said, conservatives, you can take back this party if you want to. Let's go get to work. And that's what started the movement toward the 1964 primary in uh, San Francisco. So it wasn't something he wanted. It wasn't something he looked for. He really did not really want to do it. But there was nobody else. He basically said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it for the party. In your heart, you know he's right. So go, go, You describe that being almost thrust upon him, that leadership position within the conservative movement. How important is the role or what is the role of his book, Conscience of a Conservative, in the rise of Goldwater in this era? The Conscience of a Conservative, uh, written in 1960 with the help of Bill Buckley, kind of defined what a Republican was, a conservative. In his book, he defined a conservative, the difference between a conservative and a liberal is that a conservative takes account of the whole man, while the liberal tend to look only on the material side of man's nature. Conservatism, therefore, looks upon the enhancement of man's spiritual nature as the primary concern of political philosophy. And then, on the other hand, progressives, liberals, regard satisfaction of economic wants. So he basically felt that freedom was more important, that man can flourish, that man can succeed, can take care of himself, is he's free without restraints from government, excessive taxes, excessive regulation. And consequently, that's how he defined what a Republican was. And I might say that that's still the definition of a Republican today. The difference today is you've got different personalities interpreting that, but it's still the basic philosophy of the Republican Party that we're a spiritual being. The natural nature of a spiritual being is that we want to be free. Uh, that's why so many people come to this country, because they have freedom. They've lived under tyranny. They know what it is like to be subservient to government dictate. I mean, everyone wants to come to the United States because they can be free. And that's the spiritual nature of a human being. That was what the, was the thrust of that book. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And what was your role in his political operation in that era, in this presidential campaign? You're in your, what, sort of mid-20s? You'll be elected to Congress yourself by the end of the decades. So what was your role in the presidential campaign in the political orbit in 63-64? It wasn't that much. Well, actually it was, I guess you might say. My After I left, my father told me to use my education. I moved to California, became a stockbroker. And so I'm just starting my career. And the last thing I wanted to do was get involved in politics. I was hell-bent on becoming successful as a stockbroker. My first job as a clerk for a specialist on the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange, he paid me $500 a month, and I sat in the pit and kept track of his trades. I studied hard, 
got my licenses. My boss gave me a desk and a phone, and I started making cold calls to institutions like California Teachers Pension Fund, uh, John Hancock, Bank of America, those kind of institutions. And all of a sudden, I started making a lot of money. I, all of a sudden, I was, I mean, I had to work hard. Uh, I was up every day at 4.30, down to the exchange by 5.30, and worked hard. And I was not interested in politics. But because my name was Goldwater, and my father was a prominent in the party, I was called upon in California to be involved. And I was involved. When your father gets into the race in 63, President Kennedy is still alive. Am I right that they were they were friends and had a good relationship? Can you speak to that relationship and what a Kennedy versus Goldwater race in 1964 might have looked like? My father was very good friends with John F. Kennedy. They served on committees together in the Congress, and they had a good friendship. They, they both had the same physical ailment. They produced too much calcium in their bones. And they both had the same doctor, a woman by the name of Janet Travell. And so my father would go down to the White House periodically, and both John F. Kennedy and my father would lay down on their face in the Oval Office, and Janet Travell would inject steroids into their backs to relieve the pain. And then they'd get up, sit in the chair, and talk politics and drink whiskey. So they had a close relationship. It was rumored at the time that my father was going to run against John F. Kennedy, JFK told my dad, he says, you sure you want this job? And my dad says, no, I don't want it. And he says, well, if you're going to run against me, why don't we run together? And so they planned to get one airplane and go around the country, kind of like Lincoln Douglas, and debate each other. They had that plan worked out uh, and a schedule already made out if that was going to happen. And they would go and fly around the country and debate each other and enjoy that. That would have been a big change of politics if we could only have that today. Friendly debates between two rivals, our country would be probably a little bit different. But they were good friends. And he was good friends with Ted Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. I was good friends with Ted Kennedy. And I don't think it's a secret that while Senator Goldwater held President Kennedy in high esteem, he didn't regard Lyndon Johnson as highly. Is that accurate? Oh, he thought he thought Lyndon Johnson was a crook. Uh, he he didn't have high regard for Lyndon Johnson at all. Uh, that's just the way, the way he felt. He had that kind of relationship with him. It wasn't a good one. There's also this era around Watergate when Senator Goldwater, among others, goes to the White House to tell President Nixon that he, that Nixon, would almost certainly be removed from office by the Senate in the Watergate crisis. And that is often said to be when Nixon finally accepted his political fate shortly thereafter, resigns. What do you know about that meeting? What was imparted to you about that really an important inflection point in American history? Well, that was uh, that was an interesting time because I was there and I had <laughs> I had to listen to all of Nixon's tapes. I had to vote on impeachment. John Dean, who was uh, Nixon's attorney, he and I were roommates in high school. We lived across the street from each other. I introduced him to his wife Mo, and today we're very close friends. In fact, I just got off the phone with him yesterday. He had a knee replacement, and I talked to him. And I said, "What's your next book, John?" I, I was trying to get him to write a book, which he came up with on scandals, great scandals. You could do a chapter on each scandal, and you could turn that into a TV series. It'd be a great one, and I wish he would do that, but he just stuck there on Watergate. But during that period of time, it was a sad period of time in this country. We had Vietnam War going on, and we had a lot of demonstrations in Washington, D.C. The House impeached. They sent the articles of impeachment to the Senate. 
Nixon didn't have the vote. So my father, Senator Scott from Pennsylvania, and John Rhodes from Arizona, the three of them went up to the White House to tell Nixon he didn't have the votes. That was not something he cherished or wanted to do or felt good about. But somebody had to let Nixon know it was up. He went up there and told Nixon he didn't have the votes, and that was it. I think my father was a little bit leery of Nixon. He was kind of, he had a wall that was hard to get through. It was kind of an opportunist, I think. But I think every president of the United States has got some characteristic that you can be critical of. The fact that somebody can start from zero and wind up as president of the United States in this country, you got to at least admire your father is synonymous with the rise of conservatism within the Republican parties. But also by the 80s and 90s, you can read some of his comments where he seems to be somewhat more pro-choice, where he supports gay people in the military, open to some forms of legalized marijuana, critical of some of the religious rights influence. Did his politics evolve in that period? Was that a natural outgrowth of where he always was? How do you put that era into the context of his political legacy? You know, if you if you stop and think about the concept of conservatism, which results in spiritual being, we accept each other as they are. The last thing we want is to have government tell us how to live our lives, especially personally, uh, whether it's gambling or drugs or religion, liking one another. That's not for government to get involved in. And he was uh, very much of a... Uh, integrationist in Arizona long before he was in politics after he got out of the military he helped integrate the, the National Guard the airport the uh, bus terminals he integrated his own store he was a, a member of the uh, NAACP the Urban League the Urban League he bailed out he gave, wrote a check so they could stay alive he was a member of both some of his best friends were Martin Luther Kings of Arizona. Uh, so my father was very much believing that people are born equal and we ought to treat them the same. And when it came to anything like gays, what have you, as long as they're not bothering you, you leave them alone. In our family, we got, well, at least two of my members of my family that are gay. And we don't have problems. Now, why should we have problems? Let people live their lives. As long as they're not bothering each other, no problem. I think my father said famously that in the military, you don't have to be straight to shoot straight, something like that. And he voted for all the civil rights acts of 57 and, uh, oh, well, he didn't vote for 64, but he had 65, 57. He voted for all of those except the uh, 64 act, and he did that because of the uh, 5th and 14th Amendment protecting property rights. He probably would have voted for it if he had to vote for it again today, but he had, he had a legitimate concern treading on property rights. Well, let's go back to the 1960s at this point. Your father runs in 64. Four short years later, you are elected to Congress. What happens in the interim? What happens from 64 to 68? How did you make the decision to run and how did you win? Well, my father lost to Lyndon Johnson in 1964 presidential race. And he had to sit out four years. Carl Hayden, who was the longest serving senator in the Senate, retired. So his Senate seat in Arizona came up and my father ran and won. 68, he went back in when Nixon was, was elected. And when Nixon got in, it just so happened there became a vacancy in my congressional district that I lived in. I was happily uh, being a stockbroker and making a good living. And this is Southern California. What part of Southern California are we talking about? 
This is Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, Burbank area, Hollywood. And a lot of my friends wanted me to run, and I really was not interested. I was somewhat involved in the party because I'd make speeches at meetings and what have you because of my name. But I was really more interested in, in making a living. A bunch of my friends got me into a bar one time, and after about the fourth drink, I said, okay. Uh, it wasn't really something I wanted to do or looked look forward to do or wanted, you know. I just, I got talked into it also. So we ran the campaign out of my house, tore the hell out of my house. And my father says, you want me to come over and help you? And I said, no, you stay home and send money. And we went off and ran against 13 other people. It was a big race, yeah, but it was only a short race because it was a special election. So we only had a month to campaign. It was a good, it was a lot of fun, actually. You know, we'd be up at five in the morning. They bought one billboard, stuck it up near my home. So after they picked me up in the morning at 530, uh, we'd drive by the billboard and stop so I could take a hard look at my <laughs> big face and get pumped up. And off we'd go to, to Lockheed and I'd stand outside the gate where 500 men would come through that gate. I shake hands with every one of them and tell them I'm Barry Goldwater, run for Congress, give them a piece of literature. I says, vote for Goldwater. And then we go to over to Northrop, we go, you know, all day long, bowling alleys, shopping centers, walking up down the strip. I won the primary and then had a, had a runoff with the Democrat. And the two of us, and I beat him by one point. His name was Vandy Camp, John Vandy Camp, and he happened to serve in the Johnson administration. Nice guy. His name was as well known as mine because the Vandycamp bakeries had these windmills, big blue windmills all over Los Angeles. So everybody knew Vandycamp and they knew Goldwater. So it was name wise, it was pretty, pretty even. We would debate each other and we became very good friends. <laughs> he even came to my victory thing, but he was a good guy and he ran a good campaign, but I just happened to beat him. Next thing I know, I'm down to the well of the House of Representatives had no idea even where the men's room was, swearing to uphold the Constitution. Well, let me ask about that. So this is the first office you held, but you were pretty sophisticated. You weren't a novice about politics, despite your young age. But once you're elected, once you are the member, what surprised you about being in office yourself? What I didn't expect is how hard I had to work. Members of Congress, people who are elected to represent you, they work hard at their job, whether it's city council, Board of Supervisors, they work a lot harder than the public really think. In Congress, it's a seven-day job. You're up early, you work all, you have, you have all kinds of things you have to do and vote, you have to study a lot. So that's what surprised me a lot about it. You learn real fast or you get run over. It was on-the-job training basically for anybody who gets elected. I came in with Nixon, uh, served under Ford, Carter, and Reagan. For 14 years that I was in Congress, I was always in the minority. But what I found fascinating about, and I think there's, we can take a lesson from the past and bring it forward today, is leadership is what's important in any government body. Whether it's the President of the United States who inspires the nation, the Speaker, that leadership is so very important. And we saw how effective Speaker uh, Pelosi was. She was amazing what she was able to do, control that, that House of Representatives. And when I was in there, we had Tip O'Neill. Now, Tip O'Neill was, was a fiercely partisan Democrat, Irishman from Boston. But he realized if the minority did not have a voice, democracy was not really fulfilled. So he allowed 
the minority to participate. We could participate in committees, offer amendments. We had full reign to participate. We knew who had the votes, but at least we had the satisfaction that we could be involved in crafting policy. I served on the um, energy subcommittee with Mike McCormick, who was a Democrat from Hanford, Washington, and the only nuclear physicist in the Congress. But I was the ranking Republican, and he was the chairman. Every day we would get together and talk about uh, windmills and electric cars and, and geothermal, magnetohydrodynamics and solar. And we were, together jump-started the renewable energy business in this country. The Department of Energy hardly had any budget at all, but we poured millions into those renewable energies, into research and development. And that's when it, all this renewable business started. At the time, the only place that you would find photovoltaics was up in space because they were very inefficient, but very, very expensive. When Mike and I would get together and our staffs, we'd craft these policies and got along well. That experience with Tip O'Neill as a speaker made my time in the Congress enjoyable because Republicans and Democrats got along. And it all was because we had a strong leader that we all respected, who treated us fairly and evenly and didn't get too partisan. He even became good friends with Ronald Reagan. That is an example that we today in the Congress should take a look at. We need stronger leaders. It's too bad what happened to McConnell. He needs to retire. We need uh, new blood. Let the new generations come along. You mentioned Tip O'Neill. You mentioned your colleague on the committees. A couple of other of the Democratic members that might surprise people who you worked well with, given your political legacy coming from a very Republican part of the country, you worked with Ed Koch, Bella Abzug. And Jack Kemp was part of my class also, who uh, made quite an impact. Ed Koch and I became very good friends because we co-sponsored the Privacy Act. Privacy was never mentioned in the Constitution. No, it was never codified. It was never really defined. But we all kind of knew what it meant. But government at the time, especially under Nixon, started abusing the privacy. He had an enemies list, and he used information from the IRS to get at his enemies. And that inspired me, and I think Ed Koch, to try to do something about defining the rules and regulations under which government can utilize personal information. We sponsored the Privacy Act, and it was a very, very hard-fought, difficult piece of legislation because people that are in government want to know everything, and they will abuse people to get what they want. And at the time, it was pretty rampant that especially the presidents could reach out to different agencies and gather information on people they wanted to know more about. And so we defined privacy as, as something like you have the right to know, you have the right to correct, uh, you can see all the information the government collects, and one agency cannot use information for other purposes. Ed Koch and I travel around the country making speeches on privacy, and he'd start over on the left, and I'd start over on the right, and we'd both talk about our civil rights and our right to be left alone, our right to protect our papers, right to be left unscrupulous of uh, invasion of our personal property, and we meet in the middle of the room and shake hands and turn and say, this is not political, this is not partisan, this is an inalienable right that we have in order to cherish the constitutional rights that were given to us by our founding fathers. Ed was, I sure enjoyed his personality, I enjoyed his uh, 
<laughs> he was just a lot of fun to be around. Yeah. I did a lot of work with Jack Kemp on, on his economic uh, theories and what have you. But, you know, growing up, I had other people that influenced me besides my father and my mother. My mother was terrific. <laughs> she was kind of quiet smoking. She said, Barry, she said, make your bed. She says, you can go out and fight the wars in the world and you may lose, but at least when you come home, your bed's made. <laughs> she was a big influence on me and my brothers and sisters. My father and I were not like this. My father was one of these cowboys from the West that you stand on your own two feet. And if you're scared and you're, you're, you don't know what to do, we saddle up anyway. He was that kind of man. He treated me that way. So he wasn't one of these guys that gushed over you. Oh, I love you. And, and all those, all that gushy stuff. No, I mean, he, uh, he was tough on me. I, I mean, I heard it from other people that your dad really likes and, and proud of you. But for him to say that, we didn't get that way. But in spite of that, he taught me a lot. Well, what was it like to have him on the other side of the Capitol in this era? Was there, obviously, there's the personal connection, personal relationship. Was there any real political connection above and beyond just one of 100 senators or a, or a senator from your own party? Did it actually matter too much day in, day out that he was your father when you were both there together? No, it didn't. It really, it didn't. We didn't have that much relationship. The only closest we got is when I first moved back there. I lived with him while I was trying to find an apartment. And we used to argue like hell, like who was going to take out the garbage and who was going to make the bed. But other than that, our voting record was pretty parallel. Was there something where politically or ideologically you two parted ways? No, never. No, we never had disagreements on most everything. You mentioned being in the minority when you were in the House and you overlap slightly with Newt Gingrich, but you're out of the house by the time he really starts rising up the ladder. And to paraphrase Gingrich, he has said that a lot of the Republicans in this era, 70s and 80s, had sort of a minority mindset. They didn't believe they'd actually take the majority, were largely content to go about their business, accepting that Democrats were going to be the majority party. Is there merit to that? Is that a fair critique? I wouldn't agree with that at all. I, I don't think the mindset of the Republicans was where it's inevitable that we're going to be minorities. There was fierce organization and fundraising and candidate support. I don't think he characterized the Republican Party correctly. I think we are just as fiercely competitive as the Democrat Party. I, I don't know where he comes up with that. I don't know. I, I just think he was a hell of a good speaker. He was a thinker. He was a creative thinker. I remember the, the Republican Party, would, they had to have a separate room for files for all of his ideas. <laughs> he was a creative man. He still is. You know, he's always topical. He's always got something to say. And you run for Senate in 1982. There's an open seat in California, a field that includes big names on both sides. Yourself, uh, Jerry Brown, future Senator and Governor Pete Wilson, Bob Dornan, President Reagan's daughter, Maureen, Gore Vidal, and ultimately Pete Wilson wins the Republican primary in the general election. What led you to run statewide in 1982? How do you look back on that race? I had, had served seven terms. I, I was getting tired. It was the same thing all the time. And I was looking for some, at my young age, I was still looking for some, a little more excitement, a little more challenge, mentally, primarily. So I was ready to retire. I, I think I served well. I did, I did a good job as a congressman, had a lot of accomplishments, but I was ready for a change in my life. And then I thought about, well, you know, if I run for the Senate, 
and I win, that's enough of a change. I got a whole new challenge ahead of me. And I found even to today, about every 10 to 15 years, I change my, my whole direction of what I do. I don't know how people like a dentist or a doctor they can do the same thing every day for their whole career. I had to change and I was, I had the freedom to do that. Fortunately, not everyone has that freedom, but I did. And so running for the Senate would have been enough of a change. It was an open seat. I think I belonged to Hayakawa, Senator Hayakawa. You know, I just ran a bad race. I lost. You come in second, uh, Pete Wilson, the Republican nominee, you come in second in that primary. Is there anything at the time you look back on and thought, boy, if I'd only I had done, if only I had done X or Y, then maybe I come out of this primary? Yeah, I, I would have done it much differently than I did. What, what happened is that when I first ran for the House of Representatives in 1969, I had a crackerjack team. I, ha I mean, I had the best of the best in terms of political strategy demographic studies, volunteers, people who put my campaign money raising. I had a great team. And I said, God, they were so good 14 years ago. I'm going to bring them on again. Well, <laughs> I didn't realize that they were probably just as tired as I was. And they weren't as sharp as they were back in those when they were all young kids. They were all young, but they'd all gotten old with me and, and they weren't as sharp as good. So I didn't have put together a good team. And that's the reason I think I started out way ahead of everybody else, beating everybody. And we just didn't run a good campaign. Yeah, well, certainly no slouch to lose to Pete Wilson, who, other than the person I'm about to mention, uh, really been the last Republican in California who's won big races. This is bouncing around timeline-wise, but I know you spent some time around and were supportive of the last Republican uh, to win races in California at the statewide level, Arnold Schwarzenegger. What was your read on Arnold Schwarzenegger as a political figure? <laughs> I knew him quite well. I'm not sure that being governor was the best use of Arnold Schwarzenegger's capabilities. But I guess he did okay, he did as well as most any other governor did. He was more of a character than he was a statesman, so to speak. It was a period of time in our in California history. And I gotta say that back when I was in Congress, politics in California was kind of, the Democrats were a little bit more than the Republicans, but it was pretty even Stephen. And we tended to work pretty well together back in Washington. Republicans and Democrats would caucus together just to talk over things. Uh, the Burtons were in power, John Burton and Phil Burton. But California just its not a fun place anymore because there's no challenge. Nobody, there's no competition here for ideas. It's all gone one side and we see the result of that. And they're all coming to Arizona and Texas and Idaho. They're, they're bailing out of California and it's all because of the politics. You got to have challenges and debate for ideas. And with that, you get better policy. So back to your timeline, you're out of office in the early 80s. You're a very young man. You're mid, what, mid 40s at that point, you know, decades in front of you. How were you thinking about your professional career? How did you think about tackling this new phase of life? Well, I did what most former politicians do. We become consultants. Uh, unless we're, you know, if you have a trade or a you're a lawyer or a doctor, but I was a businessman and I wanted to get back into business. I liked the challenge of a project and work hard at it and either fail or succeed. And I liked that dynamic aspect of the free market system. And I've had lots of failures and lots of successes. 
I've been uh, exposed to a lot of new subject matters like electric cars and uh, alcohol and cell phones and new subjects that you get involved with and new people that you meet and work with. It's the genius of the free market system that allows people to do that in this country and I'm taking advantage of it. I've been able to take care of myself at the same time take care of my family and not depend on somebody else. And I'm very proud of that. 82 was your last race. There must have been at some point a race that you, somebody came to you or you kicked the tires or you gave some consideration to running for office. What was, what was the closest you ever came, the closest you kicked the tires on another race for public office? That never happened. I, I get asked to run for different offices. I've done that, been there, that's it. But I still stay involved in politics. I make speeches, help advise uh, politicians on strategy and what have you. I do like politics. I keep involved as much as I can, but the last thing I want to do is become another candidate. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. And what is the story of you being on the ballot in a few places uh, as a vice presidential partner in 2008 with Ron Paul? In Louisiana. How, How does that come to be? Well, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big supporter of Ron, Ron Paul. I think he, he made a, a good contribution when he was in Congress, and he continues to have a voice, which I think is, is important. He ran for president, and uh, in Louisiana, I think for $50, you could put your name on the ballot, and somebody did that, put Ron Paul and Barry Goldwater on the ballot, and I think we came in, I'm not sure, I think it was beat Ralph, Ralph Nader, but we had nothing to do with it. It just... Somebody stuck our name on her. We're here in the 2024 election. There's no shortage of Republican presidential candidates. In the past, you mentioned Ron Paul. You've endorsed other candidates. Are you? Is there one of these candidates running for president now that uh, is more in line that you're rooting for? Or are you scrupulously neutral? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at the neutral phase. I like what Donald Trump did when he was in office. I thought he did a decent job of cutting taxes and regulations and uh, building up our defense. But I think it's time that he needs to retire also. I think it's unfortunate what's happened to him, but it's politics. I mean, I've never seen this kind of political hatchet job on another politician before, but it's not the first time. I remember how much we beat up on Bill Clinton. I mean, the Republicans were merciless. We even impeached, impeached him because he liked some little girl, you know? I mean, Republicans, it's a two-way street, and uh, but the Democrats are doing a hell of a job on, on Mr. Trump. But we did a pretty good job on Clinton. You know, there's a story about that. Clinton came into office. He was a masterful politician, one of the better ones that we've ever had. Communicator, Ronald Reagan, Clinton, they were pretty much even Stephen there. But Clinton was a gentleman also. The Republicans were just beating the hell out of Bill Clinton, and my father stood up in public and told the Republicans to shut the hell up and let Clinton be president. And my dad took a lot of brickbacks for that. He was right. I don't know, a year or so later, Clinton was in an airplane going to California, but he had them stop in Phoenix. My father happened to be in the hospital, and Clinton got in the car and drove up to the hospital and thanked my dad. That was, that was amazing. It just spoke highly of Bill Clinton and the times that we lived in those days. 
never heard that story. So thanks for, thank you for sharing that. You've mentioned the name Ronald Reagan, who you would have overlapped with, certainly in his time as president, but also in California politics. Just from seeing Reagan up close, what can you impart about Reagan, seeing him up close, that the rest of us wouldn't know who only observed him at a distance? You know, I I got to know him quite well because Nancy, his wife, father, was a surgeon or a doctor in Chicago. And they would come out to Arizona in the winter. And they had a house right up the street from where I live here at the Biltmore. Nancy and Ronald would come over to visit Nancy's parents. And because of that, they got to know my father and mother. The Goldwaters and the Reagans go back a long ways. When I decided to run, of course, then he, he made... Reagan made a speech in 64 that kind of launched his political career. This is the issue of this election. You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down. Up, man's old age dream, the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Barry Goldwater has faith in us. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. Thank you very much. When he was governor and I was running for Congress, uh, Reagan, because there were so many of the Republicans in the race, he says, I'm not getting involved until after the primary. Don't even ask me. So my uh, communications director was sharp. We knew Ronald Reagan was going to be speaking up here at this restaurant. So the two of us went up there ahead of time, and I hid in the bushes where he gets out of his car. And my communicator, he's up with his camera. As soon as Ronald Reagan gets out of his car, I just kind of walked up next to him, said, hello, governor. I took the picture. We peeled off, went home. Next day was in our brochure. Didn't say anything, just a picture of Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater. So after I won my congressional seat, we had a, you know, a victory for the party, and Ronald Reagan came by. And I had this uh, poster that I used in the campaign, and it's a picture of him drawing glasses on my face. Yeah, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I've made a screenshot, and I'll share this photo you're showing. I'll share it on my uh, podcast Twitter feed so people can see it. It's a great shot of you then Governor Reagan at your first victory party some 54 years ago, if my math is correct. So folks can see it when this episode goes live on the ProPolitics podcast Twitter feed. Pretty cute, huh? Yeah, we were good friends, and Nancy kept trying to find me a wife. He really, I mean, what way? the way he saw Ronald Reagan was the way he was in real life. He was very friendly, nice to be around, gentle. Uh, he just had a sweet disposition. Nancy was a little tougher. You know, she didn't say a lot, but boy, when she did, you paid attention. But Ronald Reagan was pretty much the way he was in public. What are you most passionate, excited about these days? What drives me is just the fact I need to work to take care of myself and put food on my table. And also at the same time, be successful enough that I can help my brothers and sisters. We're all in, in our 80s. I'm probably the healthiest of the four of us. I take care of them. The fact I can do that gives me a a lot of warm feelings. I also enjoy having interns in my office that I can mentor and teach them. I've got a young gal right now that she just all of a sudden is starting to 
just soak up all this stuff about government politics and things like that. Of course, I got her moving to the right as much as I can. And then she comes from the left. But helping other people do that, it also gives me an opportunity to make enough money to, to donate to charity and get involved in charity. One of the great things that I've learned or my rewards in life was uh, finding a higher power. Most of my life, I didn't, I believed in God, but I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't go to church. After I left Congress, when you are at the top of the bubble and you get a lot of attention, you're a celebrity, once you're out of office, I mean, it gets deathly silent. And it's very hard psychologically on you. I don't care whether you're a football player or a politician. When you come out of that limelight, it's a hard fall. And I watched my father take that same fall. I had to, I went through it. I had a big struggle. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't, I didn't really, I was sort of wallowing around and trying to figure out how do I get out of this morass that I was in. In 64, I traveled all over the country for campaigning for my father. I'm a pilot. And so I'd fly to Chicago commercial and I would rent an airplane, hopscotch all up and down the middle of the country uh, in this little airplane and make speeches. And I stopped in a little town called Highland, Illinois and met a family called the Waiters. My mother was fiercely Christian, Louise. I'm still friends with them today, but Louise would, you know, later on, she would call me. She said, Mary, she said, have you, uh, you read the Bible? I know, uh, Louise, I'm getting around to it. I got it right there to do it. And I never did. And she'd hang up the phone and say, well, I've got a, a prayer in my apron pocket for you. And this went on and on for years. So here I'm wallowing around in my self-pity, trying to figure out where, where my direction should be. So I, I call Louise and I says, Louise, how do I find God? I figure maybe there's something. And she says, it's easy, Barry. Just ask him to come into your life. And I said, come on, there's got to be a burning bush. There's got to be some big bang or something. She said, nope. Just ask him to come into your life. And I did. And all of a sudden, my whole life just opened up. I found a job, which was the best thing for me, to have something to do every day. All of a sudden, everything just came together, and I was a new man. And I, I don't dismiss that. I became a believer. I'm not big on the church. I think churches tend to confine people. But the higher power, you don't need a church to connect. And so there's not a day, every day in the morning, I say a prayer. Help me to be a good person today. And that's one of the big things I've achieved in my life, I think, makes me keep up going every day. I've been blessed. I've had a lot of wonderful experiences. And I cherish those. Well, yeah. thanks so much for sharing and being so personal with your with your stories. It's truly an honor, a great glimpse into some of the most important moments in politics of the past hundred years. Great stories, insights from your own career. Barry Goldwater Jr., thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.